We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. It's very nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to finally meet you too. <laughs> I'm like, I know we've been trying to get this done for so long and, and I have Kenna with me. She should stay pretty quiet, but... I tell you, okay. it's one of the treasures that we work around and and of course, that's why we're here to begin with is because of the kids and, and telling their stories. I, I know you and I were kind of texting back and forth and we were kind of talking about that fine line between feeling like we um, are exploiting our story mm-hmm. or we're trying to gain sympathy or empathy from a group of people right. who don't know us. And, you know, or even the, the podcast, it's not why we do the podcast. It truly is to bring awareness and conversation and, um, and just education to yes. people that don't really understand. So is, is that something you struggle with as well? Yeah. I mean, just even like sharing things on Facebook where I've had a hard time, like finding a balance of like, am I sharing too much? I mean, I know my purpose in doing it is not what some people may see in my purpose. Like, I feel like I, some people see it, like I, like you said, like I'm, throwing, like I said, throwing a pity party. And I'm like, that's not what I'm doing at all. Mm-hmm. I share our story to spread awareness because, you know, we've walked through a lot of things. And I think it's important for that to be, you know, spoke about and spread awareness about. And, and if I can just help one family, even just one person that's like, oh my gosh, I'm going through that. Wow. Like your story helped me get through that. Even this year, just in 2021, I've kind of not shared as much as what I have been. I mean, I started sharing her journey back in 2018 and I originally just started sharing to really just share with our family and our close friends, like this is what's going on. And then it just turned into this, like I was doing like daily updates, weekly updates. And it just was a therapeutic outlet for me. And that was the whole intent. I feel like a Facebook post or social media post, you can take it in so many different directions. And so when you read something, you're like, that sounds super depressing. (laughs) And so then you like take it like that. And then there's some things, well, that was really happy. And it's like, yes, it goes both ways. But I think getting the chance to speak with my own voice is going to be a huge difference compared to social media post. So I'm super excited. I mean, I'm so grateful for this opportunity and just to tell you a little bit about Kenna and all the things. And and I, I am so happy that you, you are willing to do this. Like for families like ours that are seeking those resources and those stories and those families, I mean, to connect with just in general. I mean, it's a huge deal. I mean, it's, it's hard to find people to connect with who have walked your path and journey. And it's so important to have that support system of people that are walking the same path as you. And well, why don't we start from the beginning? Because honestly and truly, um, I mean, the only things I really know about Kenna and about you are, are kind of what you've posted on Facebook. And so I'm kind of excited to hear your world and journey from the beginning. So my name is Chelsea. And um, I live here in Yukon with my husband, and I have my son, who is 
six, going on seven. He is a hundred percent boy. He is, he's always, he's my baby and he's, he's my big baby and he'll always be my big baby. Um, but he is a wild child. He's, you know, as he's gotten older, he's gotten out of his comfort zone. He's so fun. Boys are, boys are different creatures. I tell people, <laughs> but they're, he's awesome. Um, and then, um, and he's going to the first grade this year. Um, and then Doug's my husband and we've been together for 12 years. Um, we're high school sweethearts. We, you know, we met our sophomore year of high school and he, and we have a funny love story. That's a, that's a whole thing. You know, we've been together 12 years. We've been through a lot together, just grown up together. It's really bittersweet. I mean, you really couldn't ask for anything better than that to have a person to, you know, walk that journey with, but and then we have Kenna. Kenna is just turned three in May. She is also a little spitfire. <laughs> Both of my kids are. But she is, um, she's a, a good girl. She's sweet. She's, <laughs> she's super, yeah, she'll tell you. She'll tell you how she feels. She's super tiny. She's a little petite little thing. But Kenna was born May of 2018. With my son's pregnancy, normal pregnancy, I carried him full term. He was 10 pounds, you know, yeah, crazy, craziness. It was a good pregnancy though, I can't complain. You know, we had no complications. He was born, all the normal newborn things, nothing special arise, nothing crazy. So I got pregnant with Kenna and I just, and, you know, I just expected, I'm gonna just probably have another 10 pound baby that's just going to be how that happens. And I have a normal pregnancy with her up until I was 34 weeks pregnant. We went and, you know, you do like your 18 week anatomy scan, everything looked normal for her. And we went back, we were followed by a high risk doctor only because my son was so large. They just like to monitor you to make sure you don't get like preeclampsia or anything like that, which I never had. So she was born. So let's see. Well, I went into my 34 week appointment. They do an ultrasound and they're checking everything and we're watching the monitor. And this is funny because my husband pretty much had like an anxiety attack because he's like, he's watching the screen. And he looks over at me and he's like, Chelsea, there's a lot of fluid in there. And I was like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You, you don't want like, you don't have like not enough fluid. I was like, it's okay. We're fine. And the, you know, the ultrasound techs like looking at it. She's like, okay, I'm going to go grab the doctor. And then I looked at, you know, Doug and I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> you never want them to say, oh, we're going to go grab the doctor. So she leaves the room and it takes forever for him to get in there. And I'm like, I don't understand what's wrong. I'm like, I have fluid. Okay, well, you can have too much fluid. Like, that's a thing. It's called polyhydramos. So I was diagnosed with that that day at 34 weeks. So I was 34 weeks and I had a, a belly of the size of like a 40-week pregnant woman. Like, I had so much fluid. And, you know, Kenna was measuring pretty small compared to what I was like expecting her to be. And so he looks at it and he's like, you know, you're already so far in your pregnancy. He was like, you, we opted out of genetic testing from the beginning. You know, that wasn't something you were interested in. 
So we didn't do any of that. And he's like, you know, we can do that. But at this point, you're going to have a baby anyways. He was like, I mean, if that's something you want to do. And I was like, you know, I don't, I'm not worried about it. I'm like, we'll cross that path when we get there. If we get there, it could be a fluke thing. The, the high amount of fluid, it could be totally a fluke thing. And he's like, with how healthy I was, you know, never had any high, like really high risk issues. He was like, it's most likely a, a fluke thing. And so he's like, but I want to see you in two weeks because we're going to do like a non-stress test. So we go back at 36 weeks, which is a Friday. And I was like, oh, this will just be, <laughs> again, here I am telling my husband, I'm like, oh, this will be nothing. They'll just go in. They just check you for like 30 minutes. And I took, or we took our son at the time, Caden was three. So, you know, it was just like a hectic appointment. Never take your three-year-old <laughs> appointments if you don't have to. And so we get in there and What's crazy about it, the night before this appointment, I was like laying on the couch and I'm like, she doesn't really seem to be as active tonight. Like normally at that time period when I was laying on the couch, and usually she would be like rolling and rolling, rolling. I'm like, surely it's nothing. Like surely maybe I just outdid it, you know, during the day. So and I was like, we have an appointment in the morning. I'm not worried about it. Well, we go to the appointment, they do the non-stress test. And it doesn't go like I think it's going to. I mean, they're like, they're in and out of the room. They're checking me. They're like, there's something not right. And I'm like, great. I'm like, of course there's something not right. I'm like, I, I tell my husband, it's going to be super quick. We're going to be fine. And then just, you know, something's not right. So they send us to another room to get an ultrasound done. And he goes to check like the blood flow of her umbilical cord and there's not really any blood flow. So at that point he's like, it's wrapped around somewhere. He was like, you're having a baby today. Like it was 9.30 and she was born at 12.30. Like my appointment time was 9.30 and kid you, I, you know, you wait in the waiting room for an hour because they're behind. And so she was born 12.30 that afternoon by emergency C-section. If we wouldn't have had that appointment that morning, she wouldn't have made it at all. And that's kind of the beginning of her story. I mean, she had, she came into this world fighting for her life. I mean, she came out not breathing. They had to resuscitate her at birth. She was put on a ventilator. And then we had a very short NICU stay. And it's funny because that's kind of the first thing people always ask me. They're like, oh, how was your NICU stay? And I'm like, really, the NICU stay was nothing. <laughs> oh, you were there five days. That's nothing. That's like short, considering how she came into this world. And even like her doctors and stuff, like, so how long was her NICU stay? I'm like, five days. I'm like, she was on a ventilator for about 18 hours. They got the fluid off her lungs. They extubated her. She was breathing. You know, and at that point, she was born at 36 weeks. So she was considered like a late preemie, but she was like a full term, like a full size preemie. She was almost six pounds. She really just had the issues of the cord being wrapped around her. I guess it was wrapped on her neck, but she, the NICU stay was really short. I mean, we didn't, all the nurses were like the things that she was doing. They were like, oh, she's just a preemie, you know? And it, when we look back, you know, three years later, we're looking back at her NICU stay and we're like, there's so many things that weren't right that were brushed off because she was a preemie. And 
that's kind of where I advocate a lot now for families. I'm like that families that do have shorter NICU stays. I'm like, there's no rush. I'm like, you know, your baby was born premature. Like make sure you're, you're checking everything off the list accurately that needs to be checked because really Kenna was there five days. She wasn't eating well. She barely passed her car seat test. They, they pretty much just let it slide by, which that's a very important thing because in her case, had we have kept her in the NICU because she didn't pass, we would have found some other things that were wrong with her. If we would have kept her in the NICU because she wasn't eating, we would have found things that were wrong with her. So after our short five day stay, which in my eyes felt like a lifetime, I never had a Nick, I never had a preemie before. I didn't know what to do with a six pound baby. I had a 10 pound baby before. <laughs> I'm like, how do I hold her? How do I feed her? My son breastfed. She didn't breastfeed. I'm like, what do I do with the bottle? <laughs> there was like, like, what do I do? I can warm this up and how good is this one? I felt like I was just starting all over again. And even my husband, because you know, with Caden, you know, I breastfed him and I did most of that work. And I'm and then with Kenna, I'm like, here, you feed her. And he's like, oh, I have to feed her. And I'm like, your turn. Because I'm like, man, I'm like, I don't even know what to do. And he's like, and then he'd look at me, what do you mean you don't know what to do? I'm like, I feel like a new, like a new mom. But this is all new territory. We're both just like, what's happening? And so we bring her home. And then, you know, you go to the pediatrician for, you know, the couple days after the born and have everything looked over while well, she ended up having jaundice, which she had in the NICU, but it wasn't enough for them to keep us. They were like, go home, get her to try to keep eating. Well, she wasn't eating. I mean, talk about force feeding your baby to eat, to get her to poop. She couldn't do it. She couldn't suck, swallow, breathe. All of them are like, oh, she's just a preemie. It'll just get better. It'll just get better. And I'm like, will it? Because I'm feeling like it's not getting better. So I take her to the pediatrician and she's not gaining weight. She's not pooping. Her jaundice levels are high. So then we spend, you know, time, we get like the Billy lights brought to our home and we have to do all that. And we do this for three and a half weeks. So, you know, we're back and forth from the doctor. We're doing labs, checking Billy levels. She's not eating. So thanks feel like they're turning a corner they're really not but like in a sleep deprived mind you're like oh things are kind of getting better so I schedule her newborn pictures and I'm like I'm gonna get some newborn pictures done and I'm like I think she's doing okay enough that I could just take her to get a newborn picture set we tried three times to do newborn pictures and she couldn't do them she would eat she couldn't sleep and my sweet photographer um she was also a nurse and I remember the second time we tried, she looked at me in the eyes and she says, something is not right. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, what? She goes, I can't even like get her to eat. And she's a nurse, you know, she's not a pediatric nurse, but she's a nurse. And so she's like, something's not right. Like, she goes, call your pediatrician, you know? So here we are, you know, that last third week at home, we're like, you know, back and forth. And then my photographer's like, bring her back. We'll try one more time. I was adamant. I was like, I just want some newborn pictures. <laughs> like as if that's really that important now that I look back, but at the time it was. So then I take her and that 
third time we tried to do pictures, she was pretty much stopping breathing at our photo shoot that we had. And my photographer is like, Chelsea, you have, you need to take her like straight to your doctor's office or the hospital. Like don't even call. Like, and you know me, I'm like panicking and I call, and I call our pediatrics and I'm like, I don't know what's happening, but yeah, I know. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening, but my daughter's not breathing right. And you know, I sound like a crazy person because like a normal person who's in their right mind and not sleep deprived would just take them to the hospital. <laughs> and now I know I'm like, I should have just switched straight to the ER, but we go to our pediatrician who I adore. She's so great. And she, you know, they get us back real quick. They check Kenneth's oxygen levels and it's in the eighties. She, yeah, like 85% crazy and so this is like where our story really begins because we you know our NICU stay I talk about it a little bit to people but really this like so our pediatrician I had my son with me and my husband was at work and she's like do I need to call an ambulance or can you drive and I was like I what am I gonna do send my four-week-old by herself in an ambulance and then like find somewhere to take my son. I was like, I need to call my husband. I was like, I have to call my husband. And so like, I mean, I go grab my husband from work. He worked down the street. I mean, we went straight to the ER and I had Ken on her, this, like, it just gives me the goosebumps when I tell this because it's like, and I just can remember it like second by second. Cause it just, that's how much of an impact it was on us. And, and it's so funny because my husband's like, how do you remember that? I'm like, because it was so traumatizing. <laughs> like when something is so traumatizing, I mean, it's so hard to forget. And then it's like, when you think about it, it just instantly replays. And I had Kina in her car seat and you know, my husband's dragging the three-year-old through the ER. <laughs> and I'm like, I slap her on the counter in the car seat. And I'm like, my baby's not breathing. And I was told to bring her here. And they're just like staring at <laughs> And those poor ER nurses, I'm like, something's not right. And they check her oxygen, sure enough, it's in the 80s. She's in her car seat. So, you know, your, your airway's already compromised in your, in your car seat. So, okay, we need to get her out. And they get us straight back to her room. And they hook her up and run all the tests, you know, all the things that happen when you get in, into the ER. And then a couple of the nurses that have came in and out, some of the doctors and the residents, they're like, she sounds like she has laryngomalacia. So, and I sometimes don't even say that right because it's a very complex word. But basically, she was born with a floppy airway. And I was like, I've heard that before. Like, it's something that I think at the time I was like, one of my friend's kids had that or something. And they're like, it's super common, but she's definitely, you know, getting negative effects from it. Like, they watched her eat in the ER and they're like, oh, she's choking. They're like, stop feeding her. <laughs> okay. And they're like, no more, nothing by mouth. Like she was put on MPO in that ER visit. And they're like, you're getting admitted and we have to run some tests. What do I do with my three-year-old? <laughs> I'm like, what? Like we're getting admitted. I'm like, what's happening? So at this point we get admitted upstairs at the hospital it's an all-day thing. I mean, people in and out, running tests. They are waiting to, they wait to do a swallow study because that's like the first thing they need to do to see if she was aspirating because of 
everything that was going on. And sure enough, she was aspirating everything that she was eating straight to her lungs, which explains why we're not gaining weight, why we can't poop, you know, all the things. And I'm like, okay, okay, so is this like something that can be fixed? Like how long are we gonna be here? Like the weekend kind of thing? And they're like, they're like, I really can't tell you that. And I'm like, okay. And next thing I know, she has a feeding tube down her nose. They're like, you can't feed her anything by mouth. And not only did she have a feeding tube, she had an NJ tube, so it bypassed her stomach because they didn't want anything in her stomach that she could throw up and aspirate. Because every time I'd feed her, she was vomiting and it was just too risky. And so I remember that first night in the hospital was like the worst night of my entire life because my baby was starving. And like, that was so hard. Like she was getting fed past her stomach and her little belly was just like growling all night. And she's just like crying, crying, crying. That's something that I'll never forget. Eventually that got better because her body adjusts to not being fed to her stomach. But that first night, I mean, and she was just a newborn who was still waking up every two hours thinking that she needed to eat when really she was getting fed 24 seven because that's what you do when you bypass your stomach. And so that weekend, they had their ENT doctor there at the hospital come in and look over her, which actually it was more like a resident. <laughs> it wasn't really like a full ENT doctor there. But um, we ended up having a different ENT doctor come in to, you know, second look over her, get a second opinion. And, you know, he sits down and he's like, and this doctor is amazing. He's been with us from day one. He sits, I remember he sits down next to me. He's like, you know, she needs a surgery now to fix her airway. There's no getting away from doing it. He was like, she's so malnourished, but you know, he gives me the risk and you know, all these things. And so what they're doing initially is they're, he's burning off the floppiness of her airway. And so, but here's the funny thing. He wanted us to go to a different hospital to have the surgery. And so he's like, the only way you can do that is if you discharge, go home. And then I check you guys in at the other hospital on Thursday. So this was a Sunday. He's like, you could, you guys can be, because really we weren't really at the hospital for anything other than the fact, I mean, at this point, I'm like, they could talk, they could have taught me how to feed her through the feeding tube. We could have gone home and did the surgery elsewhere. So I'm like, I listened to you. Sounds great. I'm trusting you. I trust your opinion. I was like, we'll discharge. See you Thursday. So I think it was like, I can't remember the exact day. I could have, I could think that maybe it was like the next day. They, they were like, sure, yeah, you can discharge because really she was stable. Like we didn't have to be in the hospital and I didn't have to like sign any special paperwork. They're just like, that's fine. Like if that's what you choose to do. And so we take her home. That night that I brought her home, she stopped breathing. <laughs> and we were right back at the hospital that next morning. We got her home. And I laid her in her back and are in her like little bassinet. I hooked up her feet. I mean, we didn't have, we had been in the hospital for almost a week at that point. She wasn't doing any of this in the hospital. And I go to lay her down. I start her feet and she reflexes and she chokes. And this was at like three o'clock in the morning. I got up to pump and I looked over and she wasn't breathing. And I, I mean, I screamed at the top of my lungs and my husband comes around because I was in the living room with her. 
and we call 911. And I remember get her in a position to just get whatever is in her mouth out. And like, I'm just like, call 911 because she is not breathing. She's choking on reef. It was reflex that she was choking on. And, you know, she was, we got her stable. And, but before the, even the paramedics got there, I mean, she was breathing again while we were on the phone with the dispatcher. I'm like, she's breathing, she's breathing now, but somebody come get us and take us back because I made a really bad mistake and I want to be back at the hospital. <laughs> I'm like, I should have not came home. Oh my gosh. It's okay though. We're going back to where we need to be. So we get back and Dogoy's like, that's okay. We'll just get her in the next morning for her surgery. And that's what we did. But we get her back to the hospital. We go through the ER again. You know, it's a whole process. They're like, oh, you were just here. I'm like, yeah, we were just here. But we're here now again. And we're not leaving until she's better. We get her readmitted. Get her back upstairs. We're back on the same floor that we were before. Everybody's, you know, they greet us with open arms. So loving. He does her surgery. And she has what's called a superglottoplasty done. And this is really common in special needs kids, like this floppy airway. I know lots of families, well, even not even necessarily special needs kids or kids with syndromes or things like that. It is more common just because they have low muscle tone. At the time though, we didn't know Kenna had any type of syndrome or anything at this point. And that's what I like to tell people. I'm like, we literally just thought it was just an airway thing. We were gonna get it fixed. We were gonna move on. We we're going to be able to eat my mouth. I mean, unfortunately, that's not what happened. But at that time, we're like, this is it. This is this is why we can't eat. This is why all these things are happening. And, you know, we wouldn't have known, I mean, at the time. So Jagoy is like the specialist in this, you know, specific airway disorder. And he does it all the time. And it's a very common surgery for him to do. And, um, at the time, Kenna was really malnourished and really weak. And unfortunately, the surgery, it went as planned, but her recovery didn't go quite as we expected it to, um, which ultimately, ultimately landed us a 100-day stay at the hospital. This whole scenario is super, super emotional for us because of like the situation we were in. And I get emotional about it because, so we spent the first night in the PICU, which was protocol for that surgery because it's an airway surgery. They like to watch. She did okay. I wasn't really, it, I, when, I, I, when I walked in that PICU room, it's not what I expected to see. Um, she at the time she wasn't on a ventilator, but she had what's called a nasal trumpet. So like it's like a huge plastic piece, and mind you, she was five pounds, so she was teeny tiny to keep her airway open, which is protocol. You know, it's normal, but we weren't expecting a PICU stay, and I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, we had you know the regular pediatric floor we were on, which is the tenth floor there, which became our home, but our home away from home, I should say. But I remember when we were in the like waiting room for the surgery, it felt like it was taking forever for them to call me. Cause you know, you sit in the waiting room, they call you, they're like, okay, Kenna's doing this. Okay, she's done. It'll be a little bit and you'll get to go see her in the recovery room. Well, like 
an hour goes by and like Degoy at this point had already came and talked to us and left. And I'm like, why are we taking so long to go see her? Like be called back. And I remember they, they called on the phone and I answered it and I was like, they're like, is this Kenna Lawson's mom? And I'm like, yeah, this is her. And they're like, okay, she's having some trouble, you know, after surgery. So we're going to um, go ahead and admit her upstairs in the ICU. And I'm like, and you could hear her in the background, the sound of her little cry. It was just so heartbreaking. And I looked at my husband, I'm like, they're taking her to the ICU. I didn't expect that. And, and then it's like another hour, hour and a half before you could even see your baby up in the ICU because it's a whole process. And then they have to get them settled and all the doctors come in before you're even allowed up there. Anyway, so we go to the PICU and it's a whole new territory for us because I hadn't been up in the PICU yet, which it's funny, the PICU becomes our home away from home. But at the time I'm like, I don't, I don't know these nurses. I don't know these people. I don't know Kenna. And the first night after that super glottoplasty, I mean, she was doing okay. And I was like, oh, cool. We're just going to be here one night. It's not a big deal. You know, we stayed the night. They monitored her. She never even really needed oxygen. She just needed to come off the anesthesia, which is normal. And so that next morning, I remember the doctor that was on was like, okay, I think you guys are good. You guys, we're going to get you guys back up on the 10th floor and you're going to get settled. And then we'll just, you know, mm -hmm. go from there. You know, and they were saying that look like she's Rose recovering great. Well, and mind you, for families that have been in the hospital, they'll know, like in the PICU, you can't have siblings and only one parent can stay. Whereas like on a regular pediatric floor, I mean, at the time, this was three years ago. So this was before COVID. So you could have, you could have your siblings, you could have siblings, you could have, you know, your husband, you know, you could have whoever you wanted really up in your hospital room. So we were so used to being able to all be together. And so like that first night was, I remember it was so hard because I'm like, at that point, I had never even been away from my son at this point, like that long. And so we were all just separated because you know my husband couldn't really be up there because he had my son or had our son. And so I just did that night by myself, which was like crazy. I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing that. So they get us back up to the regular floor and we're like, yes, like we're back together. Like, we're so excited. Like, one night was too much. Like, we're, you know, and I call my husband. I'm like, we're going back to our regular floor. Go back and get the bags out of the car. You know, bring them back up here. Because, you know, we had, to un we had to, like, unpack our whole room for this, like, one night stay in the ICU. And so we get Kenna back on the floor. And I notice she starts breathing weird. I'm like, it looks like she was in pain. And so I call the nurse in because we weren't even settled. Like we get her in the room, there's still stuff all over her bed. I'm like, they hadn't even got her switched over to the stuff in her new room. She was still like on a traveling like IV thing, like all the things. Nothing was even undone. And I looked at my husband, I'm like, she's breathing so weird. And the nurse is like, I think she's okay. And they put blow by oxygen. So it's just oxygen that's like, blowing by your face not really like an oxygen mask well and she's hooked to the monitors and they get her switched to like the main hospital monitors 
except like because she went on the travel one so they like unhook all that get her on the main monitors and we're watching her numbers like her sats and I remember I'm like why are her sats being weird like you know her oxygen was being weird her heart rate was being weird and we're all just standing in there it's just me my husband at the time my three-year-old and the nurse that was trying to get us situated well Kenna's heart rate starts dropping and dropping and dropping her oxygen starts dropping and dropping and dropping i'm like what's going on like what's happening and they and the nurse looked at me she goes yeah in the hall and tell them to come in here and i'm like i was like they need you guys in here something's not right you know something is going on well kenna was going into cardiac arrest i i can't even make this up we were in that room for five minutes from the icu back to our regular room and Bam, heart stops, code blue's called. The entire PICU team that was just in our room 30 minutes before that was back upstairs in our room giving CPR to our baby. We still to this day don't have a full explanation of what happened. Um, we honestly just think that her body was just so tired I mean, just a lot of trauma. Surgery in general is really traumatic on somebody's body. And then you perform surgery on a tiny little five pound baby who's been malnourished because they haven't been able to eat. So we think there was just like, and you did an airway surgery. So it's like, her, we think her airway may have swollen shut and then like everything else just, you know, downhill. She had just had airway surgery. I hear all the ICU doctors and they're like, I don't want to intubate her. They just did surgery on her airway. And I'm hearing all these doctors like, what do we, what do we do? We can't mess up what was just done. And I remember I looked over and I'm like, you call the doctor that just did surgery on her. <laughs> I was like, here, you want his number? I'm like, somebody call him now. And what gives me every time is he happened to be at the hospital that day for a conference, happened to be there just in time to get to our room to do an emergency intubation on Kenna. And, you know, I tell people, I'm like, people are put in the right places at the right time for a reason. You know, he, he ultimately saved her life that day. I had doctors that were straight up telling me, I don't want to intubate her. I'm like, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. But I was hearing that. And that's what got me because I'm like, what do we do if you can't get a tube down her throat because her airways closed shut? I mean, at that point, we were minutes away from an emergency trach being inserted into her airway. I mean, that's how close we were. And she couldn't end up needing a trach. Like we were, we were in that position where we weren't sure what was gonna happen. You know, and you know, she ended up with a trach, she ended up with a trach, but like that day is a day that will forever be something that we remember, not just because it was such a bad day, but because Kenna's life was like literally saved that day. And it's just crazy. I sometimes don't even have the words because it's just like, incredible. So here you are thinking, okay, this surgery is going to be done. 
I'm going to have my healthy baby now back in my arms. She's going to be able to eat and sleep and gain the nourishment that she's needed. Um, to now your baby has had the surgery, thought things were going okay, and now you're intubated and they just have called a code blue at this point. And so yes. your life again is completely upside down. Oh, completely turned upside down, you know? And then I had my son with me and I'm so grateful he was three at the time because he doesn't remember any of this, but you know, they have, the hospitals have child life specialists, which are so important to the hospitals. And I'd love to talk about that more eventually, but the sweet child life up on the 10th floor of the hospital we're at is incredible. And I remember she scoops Kanan up in her arms and he gets her out of that room before he can see anything. And I remember I'm just standing there like staring like at her monitors and my baby and I'm like, you know, speechless. And then my husband leaves the room and I'm just standing in there, you know, surrounded by the doctors. They don't even know what to do, what to say to me. I'm just like standing there like, I don't know. And then of course they're like, you need to get out, you need to get out because I don't want you in there. So eventually, you know, I'm escorted out of the room and then put in the hallway while I wait and just pray that they got her intubated because at that point, when I got pushed to the hallway, I still didn't know. I still didn't even know what the situation was. I just knew when I left that room, my baby was getting CPR and didn't know what was going to happen. But by the grace of God and putting the right people in the right places, you know, she was intubated and she was quickly taken back to the ICU. And we spent a long 14 days on a ventilator in the PICU. Um, she had a really, really hard time on the ventilator. She didn't like it. She, and, and it's funny now that I look at it, I'm like, that's so Kenna. I'm like, she is, she doesn't like things touching her. She doesn't like people messing with her. And so, and she was intubated and that girl, I mean, they would sedate her like a grown man. And they couldn't get her to stop fighting the two. And the issue we had is that if she pulled her ET tube out, we would risk losing her airway. Like her airway was so fragile. I mean, I couldn't even touch her. You really can't touch her. You really can't startle her. We can't have her moving. I mean, that is so hard. Even in the NICU, you're allowed to touch your baby. And that's so funny because like in the PICU and the NICU, they have different views of like, what you're allowed to do and I, what you're not allowed to do. And I hear that a lot, you know, and to pick you, they have pretty strict rules. I mean, she was considered, I mean, technically really, she was still young enough that I'm like qualified for like a NICU spot, but she was put in the PICU and I couldn't change her diaper. I couldn't touch her. I had, I'm completely hands off. She had to be completely swaddle tight all the time like hands tucked in because she'd pull at things and that was just too risky. And even having her completely sedated, I mean, stuff that would wipe us out for weeks didn't touch her. I mean, it's so crazy. I don't know how that happens, but it does. And she really just struggled with that. And she had a lot of setbacks. Being put on a ventilator comes with a lot of risk and Families that have had kids on ventilators will know that. I mean, your risk of infection is higher. She was completely healthy when she went in there, other than she had surgery. But then she ended up with all these infections in her lungs. And 
not really pneumonia, but like pretty much pneumonia. And she'd have to get intense chest physical therapy because, you know, when you're on a ventilator and you're not moving, you know, your risk for pneumonia is higher. And so she ended up getting these infections on her tube and was put on antibiotics and her airway wasn't like the swelling wasn't going down because she kept getting sick. And so after 14 long days and lots of discussions, you know, we were like, we have to get her off the ventilator because if we don't, then a trach is going to be something that gets brought up. And I told our ENT, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I, if I can avoid it, I don't, I mean, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be put in that position to choose a trach for your kid. I mean, I was like, I was like, she was healthy. This shouldn't, I was like, this shouldn't be happening. I'm like, we shouldn't be questioning a trach right now. Let's just try to get her off the vent. Please, let's get her off the vent. And so it took two trial times. They turned the vent off. They do, I wish I could really explain all the things they do. I can't even tell you like what a ventilator settings look like. Cause I really, at that time, I was still pumping breast milk every two hours and not touching her trying to keep my milk supply up because I'm not even touching my baby. Like that is the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I just know that they said, I would just ask them like, is she breathing over the vent? That was all I was worried about. They're like, oh yeah, she's breathing over the vent. It's just, we need her airway to not be swollen. I'm like, okay. <laughs> as long as she's breathing over the vent. I was like, okay, that's good. We, we're going in the right direction. And she always was breathing over the vent per se. They would make the settings to where it was breathing 100% for her so she would stop fighting it so she could try to be sedated but after 14 days they get her extubated praise god you know we get extubated she gets the breathing tube out she's put on like a high flow cannula we spend another day or two in the icu and she's making a making a turn and i'm like we're going the right steps i'm like but mind you, we had just been in the PICU for 14 days on so many hardcore medications. Like, there's more to it than just, oh, you get to go out of the PICU and go home. That's not how it works. And they don't advocate. They don't, they don't prepare you for what's next, what's to come. And so that's something, too, that I advocate so hard about. I'm like, I wish that there was more knowledge of, like, what comes after your kid's been on a ventilator for X amount of days or, or these medications for this amount of days? Because I was delirious. I wouldn't have thought my little baby was going to have withdrawals. Would have never even thought that. Never been through that before. But boy, I was in for it. <laughs> because we spent 14 days in the PICU. We get back to the floor. And I'm like, cool, when do we get to go home? And they're like, um, when she's completely weaned off all of these medications and they had an entire list of things on her little communication board that she had to be with, that had to be completely tapered off. And I'm like, okay, how fast do these get tapered off? And they're like, oh, it's like 0.01 mil a day. Like, I mean, it's like the tiniest amount. I'm like, so you're telling me we have like another two weeks at least? And they're like, yeah, if not longer. And I'm like, this is crazy, crazy. And then like with her size and how much medication she is on, she was like, yeah, this is how it worked. Well, that would have been really great to know because I was just like, under the impression we would just get to go home. 
And while she was in the ICU, she had a pick line placed because, you know, they're checking labs every two hours. She had no good veins anymore. So she had had a pick line placed. And, and I'm like, when do we get to ditch the pick line? And they're like, oh, not until the day you're leaving because there's no way we would have lines for her. So then you're like risking infection with a pick line. So I, I really don't remember per se how long we stayed after initially getting out of the ICU. Um, because we were discharged <laughs> and then had to go back. So we were discharged that first time. Then she had her surgery. And then after the surgery, we stayed in the PICU. And then we got her situated enough to go home. We should have never went home when we did. I mean, we literally were home for two days and they had us go right back because she wasn't eating and wasn't gaining weight. And she still had a tube, but they were still like, you know, try to get her to eat because the airway was supposed to fix our problems. Unfortunately, it still didn't fix our problems. After two days of being home, we go back, we go back through the ER, we go back through everything. She had just had her pick line taken out. So she had, I mean, she looked like a ghost. I mean, no veins in sight. We had to start the process all over again. It took three admissions, three admissions and a total of 120 days total that we were there. So this next day is when I put my foot down and I was like, enough's enough. You know, I, for real, I looked at these hospitalists and I'm like, we're not leaving <laughs> until we figure out what is going on. So there's something more, there is something more going on. And she was still like reflexing and like she'd reflex and stop, like stop breathing and turn purple. And then it looked like, you know, like the baby's like bearing down to have a, a bowel movement. Like it looked like she was doing that like 50 times a day and not, not good, not normal. Get readmitted. And I get all these hospitals on my side. Finally, they're finally seeing the things that I've been seeing. I'm like, there's still something not right. I don't know what it is. And then, you know, Degoy's like, she has this feeding tube down her throat. I'm like, those make you gag. And he was like, we need to get that pulled out. What can we do? And I was like, a, a feeding tube, like a G-tube, a more permanent option. I'm like, because obviously this isn't working. We are bypassing her stomach. Nothing is working. And I'm like, the crazy mom up there. I'm like, please put a G-tube in. <laughs> can we please put a G-tube in? And like, what's funny is, I have a, there's a friend that I know that her daughter had a feeding tube. So I, like, I knew a little bit about feeding tubes because I've seen her share stuff about her daughter. And she was like immediately messaging me. She was like, you know, get, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Like she had all the things I needed to know. And so I walked in and I'm like, just, let's just get it scheduled. We've already been doing this at this point, you know, a month and a half. We need something more permanent. So that's when the decision was because she was reflexing and the, we knew she couldn't eat because she was aspirating still. Because at that point we had redone all our swallow studies and rechecked all our things. And we knew like, okay, she's obviously still not, something's still not right. I was like, we have to get that tube out of her nose because she can't breathe. She can't, she keeps gagging, she keeps throwing up. I was like, let's do a G tube. And I know that's like, super blunt, risky, because it's a surgery. We just, you know, nobody wanted to do a surgery on her because of what we just went through. She needs something more permanent. We have to get that out of her nose. We've got to get her fed. I was like, at this point, she was going on to May, June, July, three months and was seven pounds. I mean, just like 
at least on the inside. And thankfully, by that time, I had doctors on my side. They were listening to me. And so we get her scheduled for her G-tube surgery. And this was August 3rd, 2018 is when she had her G-tube play. So we're creeping up to three years with our G-tube, um, which is an incredible device. And I'm a huge advocate for them. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I know all the things, all the tricks, all the fun stuff. But so she had her G-tube placed and we, because of her situation, we stayed the night in the PICU. That was just to monitor her and make sure she didn't try to pull any shenanigans on us because she is really good at that at that point. But we only spent one night in the PICU, back onto the floor. We had some trouble with like pain tolerance, but a lot of that was because she had been so dependent on pain medications while in the PICU the first time. And so we did struggle a little bit trying to find a balance with her pain medicine because no, like we could only give so much because then it suppresses your, your respiratory system. So there was a fine line of trying to keep her comfortable, but keeping her breathing. <laughs> and that was the goal. She has to breathe all the time. So we had a couple scares after the G-tube, like we had lots of eyes on her. She had the G-tube placed in August of 2018, August 3rd. And from then, we start to kind of really, we go, I think we what, like a week or two with the feed, the feeds with the G-tube. We're fortifying. And at that point, we just needed her to get bigger and gain weight and prove to us that she could gain weight, which she was slowly showing us that she was going to gain weight. And so we were doing weight checks every morning and we knew that at some point we would get to go home. Well, then one of the doctors kind of comments something and they're like, she seems real floppy. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Wouldn't you be floppy if you've been laying in the bed your whole life? I was thrown off guard. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with her. I was like, she's just been traumatized her entire life. She give her some grace, you know, I'm like, give her grace, give her grace. And they're like, we're going to have a neurologist just come in and evaluate her. We're going to have a pulmonologist just come in and evaluate her. all these specialists. At this point, I'm like, whatever. You guys have them come look. And the neurologist is looking at her and they're like, okay, we're going to run a couple tests because she had like a head lag. Like you would go to like lift her up and her head would flop backwards. Like she couldn't hold her head up. At that point, I'm like, how do you determine something is really wrong when she's been in the ICU and hasn't been able to be held like a normal baby or anything like that? And so they run labs and those take like eight weeks. Like it was like a, at the time, I didn't realize it was a full genetic testing. <laughs> I just thought they were doing like a blood draw. Like they did a blood draw, but I'm like, oh, you're just sending labs like they've been doing. No, they did full genetic testing on her. And I had no idea. I, sh I mean, I, I probably didn't know, but I really did it. I was like, and so then like, it takes like eight weeks. And I was like, eight weeks for what? And they're like, oh, it's genetic testing. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. I, I mean, that would have been totally great to know. And me and my husband, I'm like, surely there's nothing. I'm like, surely there's nothing. Like, I'm not worried. I wasn't worried about it. At that point, I was like, I want to get her home. We want to be home. That's all we wanted. Well, then as the time went on, she kept having these horrid, like, apnea spells. Like, it was literally, like, one thing after another. And she would, like, just stop breathing. 
the monitors would all go off and she's holding her breath. It was just like this big ordeal. Like we spent like three weeks just like trying to contemplate how we were going to address it. And Jagoy didn't want to do anything else for a while because she just wasn't healthy to do anything else with. We kind of tackled this like sleep apnea. We kind of like, I don't know, I don't say we tackled it, but we got it stable enough that we were like, okay, she's stable now. We kind of got her situated. We, we did some medications to help with her like secretions and things like that. So at this point, we had been discharged three times. <laughs> Readmitted, we've had two surgeries, two PICU stays, tons of things, a sleep study, all within 120 days. So this was from June, the mid mid June, all the way through August. So we spent that entire time in the hospital, and then something got brought up about us going home, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, when can we go home? And they're like, here's the thing. We don't want you to go home first. We actually, they wanted her to go to the Children's Center in Bethany. And I remember I turned my head real funny because like, I'm from Bethany, like originally from Bethany. I knew, I know the Children's Center. I knew what it was. I knew what, what they do and the kind of kids that stayed there. And, you know, they're really complex and most of them are like on ventilators. And I kind of was like, the Children's Center for what? And they both were like, the two doctors that were like, oh, the Children's Center has this new program. This was in 2018 because they had built their new tower. They have a new program for kids that are more like Kenna that just need to transition to go home. And I was like, oh, really? You know, and it took me a hot minute to register. I'm like, okay, she's not going because she's on a tray. She's not going because she needs like this complex nursing care. It's transi transition to go home. And I was like, that sounds amazing, <laughs> you know, me and my husband are like, we live literally eight minutes from the children's center, whereas, you know, the children's hospital, we're a 30 minute drive. So it's like, wow, I want more information. I was like, you know, I want to know more. What, what are we going to be doing? What does it entail? And they were like, you know, she's going to go there. They have like a, it's a full rehab hospital. So she's going to get all these therapies, you know, occupational, physical, speech, feeding. And I was like, sold. So you don't have to tell me twice. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, that next day, they had the children's center out of the hospital. They were evaluating Kenna, and she went like that next Monday. And then our, we transitioned from full-on hospital life to like transition to go home, which was a huge deal. I mean, we had been through so much in 120 days, and I was just like, whatever we have to do to get home. And so then we kind of embarked on this new journey of like preparing her to be in the real world and not in a hospital room, <laughs> which is a huge deal with the baby that's been, you know, hospitalized their whole life. So from the Children's Hospital, we get transferred to the Children's Center in Bethany, and um, we do a we agree to do a thirty day inpatient stay, and this was all really to, like I said, tra to transition to go home also desensitize her to be able to live a functional life because she was to the point where she couldn't even be touched because every touch she had had was so traumatic and traumatizing and painful and that's not something you think about and even if 
even for like a just like a NICU baby, I mean, that is the it's almost the same concept. I mean, they're just poked and prodded, poked and prodded, messed with, woke up every two hours, like for vitals. I mean, it's a lot. And so we transitioned to the Children's Center in Bethany in September, like the first week of September of 2018. So we spent the whole month of September at the Children's Center. And that is where, that's the place that we got her diagnosis. Um, that's where we've gained a lot of friendships. And we use that time to prepare our home for her to come home because it is so amazing because yes, you can stay there where we were at. I, I'm not familiar with the complex side. Um, I know on that side, I don't think parents are allowed to stay, but where we were in the tower, um, they encourage a parent to stay every night, which I did. Um, at this point, I had not stayed a single night away from her. I had spent every single night right there with her, um, even through our first hospital stay. And so I had stayed every night with her, but during the day, I would escape. <laughs> I would, and at that time, my son had started pre-K, so I was, you know, we were shuffling, getting my son to school, so my husband would drop him off at the hospital in the morning, and then I would take him to school and walk him into school and took that time to, you know, do that and then go home and prepare our home. I mean, we had four months worth of hospital stuff at our house that had to be put away. And, you know, we had to mentally be prepared to bring home this baby that was on a G-tube and was going to be on a pulse ox. And we were going to probably bring home oxygen, you know, and all these things. And the Children's Center really brought hope back to our family, like that it was going to be okay. Like the staff there, they were so understanding with us and letting us, you know, leave her there during the day. And she was so cared for and loved on. And um, it, it's a big transition though, going from a hospital, like a full hospital to like a rehab hospital. Um, just, I feel like any transition, you're, they get their nights and days mixed up. So the first week and a half was really, really hard on her. And I remember I didn't get any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the first week of her half there because she slept all day and I think she learned real quickly that they were coming in during the day to mess with her and do therapy so she would sleep all day and then be up all night and we still joke about it till this day even with some of her therapists that we see now I'm like yeah remember when she would like pretend like she was sleeping all day just because you guys were coming to do therapy but at the children's center where we stayed she received occupational therapy and physical therapy and um speech well in her case it was feeding therapy um we didn't get a whole lot out of our therapies because it was more of just we needed to be able to be touched and held and be able to have a bath like she literally had never had a real bath before i mean until we got to their children's center because she was four weeks old whenever we got first admitted and at the children's hospital and she hadn't even had a chance to have a real bath yet because her umbilical cord hadn't fallen off yet and so then we get admitted and then they don't do baths at the hospital like real baths and so like that was a thing I'm like I remember them saying like what's some of your goals I'm like I'm gonna give her a bath I'm like, I want to give my baby a bath like I haven't been able to do that and so that was like I mean that's crazy how something so simple I'm like we had to work so hard to get to 
we spent 30 days there. And during that stay, we had lots of follow-ups with her specialist that they wanted us to see once we got discharged. And um, we knew we were going to eventually get a call from the neurologist regarding her genetic testing. And I still didn't think anything of it. I don't, I really don't see how anything is wrong. I'm like, she's doing well, she's improving, she's getting better. And I remember I had dropped my son off at school and I get a phone call. And the nurse on the line is like, hi, is this Kenna Lawson's mom? I'm like, yes. And they're like, this is so-and-so from our neurologist's office. And we have one of the genetic testing back and everything looks great. We're waiting on the second test to come back. And at this point, I still don't even know what they tested for. I didn't even ask. Okay, sounds great. You told me it sounds good. You said everything looks good. Surely the second test, whatever they tested for, was going to come back just fine. I didn't even think about it. The next day, I kid you not, the next day I get a call. And her, the tone of her voice is so different. She's like, hi, is this Kenneth's mom again? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, okay, um... Kenneth's doctor wants to see you guys as soon as possible to go over these second set, set of results. And I'm instantly like, of course, like something's wrong. I'm like, you don't want to see us if something isn't wrong. And I remember my heart just like sunk to my stomach because I'm like, at this point, I don't even know what the test is for. So I'm like, I didn't even ask. I'm like, okay. And like the children's center had to set up the appointment because we were inpatient. So like, I had to wait for the children's center to be like, okay, this is when your appointment is. It's not like I could call and be like, oh, I'm going to be here this day. I want to say it was a couple of days after that. And my husband had gone back to work and there was no way that he was going to be able to get off to go to this appointment. So I'm like, I'll just take her. And they allowed me to drive her by myself. I didn't have to like get any special transport or anything. And so I just take her like it's a normal appointment. Like it's not like we're inpatient. I take her. And I mean, that the, the tone of her doctor's voice still eats me alive. You know, we get into the room and she has this packet with stuff, information. And she's like, I just, I just want to let you know that Kenna tested positive for Angelman syndrome. And I'm like, Angelman syndrome? I'm like, what is that? She goes, so it's a neurological syndrome. And she looks at me in the eyes. She goes, Kenna probably won't ever talk. Kenna probably won't ever walk. Kenna probably won't ever live a normal life. And the, the tone of her voice is just how I'm talking. And she's like, um, I'm gonna go ahead and get a referral in so you guys can see a geneticist to do some genetic counseling and they can give you more information. And she's like, but her syndrome makes her really happy. So she's gonna be a really happy baby. And that was it. And I'm like, what? And she hands me this paperwork. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like reading over it. I'm like, okay. And like looking at all the symptoms, seizures, you know, lack of talking. Like, and I'm like, she's four months old. Like we haven't even hit milestones to know that this stuff is like gonna happen. What just happened? <laughs> and I'm like, I get on Google. Don't get on Google whenever you get a diagnosis. But I did because I'm like, this isn't answering my questions. She's like, okay, well, we'll see you in six months for a follow-up. Like that was it. Besides seeing a geneticist, which is a whole nother thing because we ended up not seeing one for two years. 
But I get on Google and I'm like sick to my stomach, you know, because it shows you the worst case scenario for anything that you look up on Google. And I call my husband and I'm like, don't get on Google, but this is what her doctor diagnosed her with. I don't know what it is or what the heck just happened, but this is what's going on. And he's like, what, what? And then we like, you know, have a moment to process it. And I'm like, holy crap, my kid's going to be permanently disabled. What just happened? Like, seriously, like, I'm just still just like in complete shock. No, there's no way. I'm like, not my baby. I'm like, she's perfect. She doesn't look anything like what they're telling me she's going to look like. She's not doing anything that they're telling me. And so we go back to the children's center that day. And those doctors already know because, you know, they call and tell them. And they all come in and they're like, you know, they give me lots of support information. They give me more help than the doctor <laughs> did initially. And I'm just like still in shock. We just got this crazy diagnosis out of the blue. And it's like one of the first symptoms is lack, like feeding, like basically saying that in infancy, so when they're a baby, they have trouble eating. Ding, ding, ding. I was like, well, there's our answer. And then we kind of took a step back and I thought about my pregnancy. And I was like, I had polyhydramos. And I remember the hospitals at the children's was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, do you think she like stopped swallowing in utero? She's like, that's what it sounds like. So, you know, initially we're like, oh, it's a fluke thing, but it wasn't, you know, she stopped swallowing because she couldn't suck, swallow, breathe when she was born. She couldn't swallow, breathe when she was in utero. I mean, and it gives me chills when I think about that. Cause I'm like, people always ask me like, would you, did you have symptoms or did you know before she was born? I was like, I didn't know, but when you look back, she had all the signs and symptoms of it because it's very common in these Angelman kids to have difficulty eating as newborn babies. Now, do they all struggle their whole life with eating? Not really. Ken is kind of a rare case. We feel like there are kids with this syndrome that have a feeding tube and such and such, but not all of them. And another thing was, we just got her diagnosis at four months old. That never happens for this syndrome because you have to miss the milestones to know that there's something wrong. I mean, we hadn't even had a chance to miss milestones yet. And I'm, I'm just sitting here going, okay, now I have all the questions for you. Right. That, like when it comes to the support piece and the, and then just, I mean, cause now she's, she's three, right? I mean, here she was. Three now, yes. Yeah. So she was, she was four months old when she four was old. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and so really those milestones hadn't been even, you know, you weren't even ready for some of those milestones. And right. Here she is three. And so there's, yeah, we got a lot to catch up on. <laughs> My conversation with Chelsea doesn't end here. In our next episode, you will hear her answer some questions about Angelman syndrome. You'll hear more about how it affects Kenna and their family. And then we'll kind of catch up on the last three years of their life. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions advocate for improved services, build connections among families, 
and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.